We're back on our series, Home for Christmas. And uh, I I admit this has been a little difficult because we're going through the book of Revelation as our Christmas series. And that can be a bit challenging, but it's been so cool to see how, how Christ as the groom is calling his bride, the church, to come back home. And like each week, we're seeing a different way where where he's saying, come home to me. And the message of the whole Bible is come back, come home to me. And we know there's going to be a day when there's no more sorrow and no more sadness and no more pain and no more fear. And, And that day gives us great hope. But between this day and that day, the bride is to live like the groom is already here, like thy kingdom is coming now through me. And so that's what God is calling us to do. And, and in this book of Revelation, we see that. John's on an island, and Jesus comes up to him and is like, man, tell him this. Tell him I'm coming. But between now and then, tell him to get ready. And so we're going through these letters to the seven churches, and, and we're using these letters to see what it looks like when God calls his church to come home. You know, it's been interesting. I've seen a theme in Revelation, and it's something... Uh, you know, God, if you, if you keep reading the same stuff in the Bible, God will give you something new every time, and it's cool. But he's, he's shown me a theme that's present all through these letters to the churches. And Paul sums this theme up great in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and it says this. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. All right, so this is a theme throughout the book of Revelations, too. We see that as God is writing these letters to his churches, there are times when he corrects, and there are times when he encourages, but it's very rarely directed at one person. It's always directed at a group of people because we're connected. And, and when, when God encourages, he encourages groups. And when he corrects, he corrects groups. And, and we are bound together. And what one part of the body does affects every single other part of the body. We have this idea that says, oh, my sin is just my sin. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect anybody else. Well, the Bible says that's not true, that, that what happens over here affects over here, and what happens over there affects That we are all tied together, and whatever happens in one part of the body affects every part of the body. I'll give you guys a little illustration I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago to get a physical. Um, They're doing blood tests and all this kind of stuff on me. Get my results back. Everything immaculate. Like, I'm not kidding. Some of the best results they'd ever seen. They didn't say it, but you know how you can just tell? (laughs) So there's... Like, they're checking my blood pressure, and there's all these physicians crowded around. Like, oh, my gosh, this is remarkable. (laughs) This man may be from Krypton. And then, I mean, they're just, they're going through, you know, glucosamine perfect. Pulse rate actually did a beat. It was like boom, 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 boom. Does anyone know that song? Rolling down the street, boom, boom. My pulse rate was actually playing a song. That's how healthy I am, okay? That's important. I was so healthy. I mean, everything perfect. I was like, take that, Christy. I don't even have to drink that juice, and I can still do this. I didn't say that. But everything came back really good, right? And so my point of this, that's good. I am healthy. According to my blood, according to my blood pressure, all those things, I am really, really healthy. But I have one leg. For those of you who knew that, you knew that. For those of you who didn't, surprise. <laughs> I've got one leg. And a sore the size of a penny on that leg will completely bring me to my knees. I won't be able to walk. And it won't matter how healthy my heart is. If there's a problem with this leg, I go down. 
doesn't matter how righteous one part of the body is. If there's sin in another part, we all suffer. And so if there's sin in my life, it affects you and affects your family. And if there's sin in your life, it affects me and it affects my family. For better or for worse, we are tied together as the body of Christ. We're one. And just the toe is just as important as the head, right? And if there's disease or sin in the toe, it affects everything. So I think it's important as, as we go through this, these, these pages in Revelation that we understand that sin is not just something that happens in private. It's something that happens to all of us. And I think it's something God wants to deal with. And we don't believe here that the solution to dealing with, with sin is, is, is amputation. We don't believe this, the, 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 you deal with sin by making one person come up and confess their sin to the whole room where everybody else hides theirs. We don't think that's the solution. We don't think the solution is to, to get rid of sinners because then this room would be empty, right? We don't think that's what we think the solution is, healing. Like people getting honest and getting in groups where they grow and where they heal and where they change. We don't think the solution to sin is coddling people and telling them it's okay. We think the solution to sin is it introduces us to a Savior that transforms sinners into saints. That's what we believe the solution is. And this is hard because, you know, in church we say things like, oh, everybody's welcome just as you are. And that is absolutely true. Every single person is welcome in this space just as you are. But nowhere in the Bible does it say you're welcome to stay just like you are forever. The point of this whole story is you encounter Christ and through Christ's love you are transformed, changed. It's not the church's job to coddle sin. That's not grace. I mean, if you, if, you, if you see your kid walking towards, walking towards traffic and you just say, oh, you know, you're okay, that's not grace. It's to love each other enough to get in groups and get honest and be transformed. And so that's what we hope is happening here. And in Revelation, when he talks to one part of the body, he's talking to the whole part of the body. And guys, these letters today to these churches, they're tough. These, this, this will be the toughest message we'll deal with in this series, but there's also a tremendous amount of grace in it, so stick with me. Revelation 2.12 says this. It says, To the church at Pergamum, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. All right, let, let's, let's stop right there for just a second. This, this, it has been so cool to me to go back and read these stories and see how Jesus introduces himself in each letter. In each letter, he says something unique about his character. And in this one, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. The double-edged sword is the word of God. Remember, Jesus is the word of God who took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. The double-edged sword is the word of God as given to us from God through Jesus Christ. That's the word of God. And so when he says, I am the one with the double-edged sword, he's saying, I bring with me the word of God. And this is the part that most of us don't really like. Because we, we like the, the Christmas story that's, you know, all it makes us happy and encouraging. And Jesus has the authority to encourage. If you're the first and the last, you died and you came back to life, you have the authority to encourage. But if you come with the double-edged sword, you come with the word of God, you also have the authority to correct. You have the authority to call up. You have the authority to challenge people, and that's what he's doing here. And this is the part of the Christmas story that offends us a little bit. This idea that God would 
step into my life and tell me I'm doing something wrong? This is the reason most people leave Christianity and go find some religion that makes them feel good. They give up altogether. This idea of of a God who is the all-consuming authority in our life and we must surrender everything to him, this is difficult. But when he said, get up and carry your cross daily, I think that's exactly what he meant. And so today, the God we're dealing with is a God who's correcting his people and calling them up to a new level. And when he says the word of God, the word of God does several things. The first thing the word of God does is it reveals truth. As I read through the pages of this book, truth is revealed to me. I I can say whatever I want to say, but when I hold up my life and use this word of God as a mirror, I see truth. The second thing the word of God does is it reveals to us the will of God, the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. As As we go through the word of God, the will of God is revealed to us. The word of God can can comfort us. The word of God can condemn us. The word of God can make us feel loved. The word of God can make us feel accepted. It's weird when he talks about the sword. The same sword that is the sword that judges is the sword that cuts the chains off the prisoners. He's the same judge. And so when he talks about his sword and the word of God, it's a sword that brings judgment but it's also a sword that brings freedom. And he's, he, he talks to this first church, and in verse 13, listen, he, he goes on, the one with the sword says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. All right, so there was this guy named Antipas, and this guy was a martyr. And a martyr is someone who gives their life for something they believe in. And they, they, this is not in the Bible, by the way, the story of Antipas. This is in the history books from, from this time in this region. And they say this guy was so in love with Christ that they caught him and convicted him and said, quit talking to people about Jesus because he refused to acknowledge the Roman emperor as God. And so they put him in a bowling pot of water. And they held him above a boiling, can you picture this? He's above a boiling pot of water. And they say, if you will renounce your faith, we will let you go. And he said, I can't do it. So they lowered him and dipped him into the boiling pot and brought him back out and said, will you renounce your faith? And he said, no. And they boiled the man alive. And that's how Antipas died. And then they went back to the church at Pergamum where Antipas had been a member and said, if you don't renounce your faith, we'll do the same thing to you. And they said, we will not renounce our faith. Guys, that's the sign of a healthy body. I mean, there, there's something special going on in that church. And so a big part, part of that body is incredibly convicted. Part of that body is righteous. Part of that body is holy. Part of that body is true. But even in the midst of part of the body being incredibly healthy, this is what Christ says in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So he says, men, some of you are doing amazing things, like you refuse, like you're being martyred for me. Thank you. He said, but some of you, there's a group of people in that church who are holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans were famous compromisers. That's what they did. They took a little Jesus and a little of the world, and they mixed it up and made a religion that made people feel good. Right? And it made sense. Compromise made sense because you'd lose your job if you didn't compromise. You could lose your life. I mean, that guy was bold alive. 
because he refused to compromise. So these Nicolaitans had their teachings that were, that were other people were following, and it was a teaching of compromise. It was a teaching of, you can do whatever you want on Friday night as long as you show up for church on Sunday morning. You can do whatever you want Saturday as long as you're at church Sunday morning. You can act however you want at the deer camp or the duck club as long as you give your little percent on Sunday morning. You can do whatever. It was a teaching that taught you can have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Jesus and you can mix it together and you'll be just fine. And into this church, the one who holds the sword says there can be no compromise. Jesus speaks into this church. He says, no, 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 no. It can't be this and that. I refuse to have my church compromise. He said, live by the rules of my house or I'll simply leave the house you're in. In verse 16, it says this. He says, repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Jesus says, man, to it, repent, like stop. Isn't it amazing? He never just comes and he doesn't hit you in the back of the head with the sword. He didn't sneak up on you. I mean, he's not that guy in the fight who waits till you hit the ground and runs up and kicks you. He warns you. He says, stop. Come back to me. Come back to me. Like I, I, when I've heard some pastors talk about this sword, they almost talk about it with a little venom, as if Jesus is frothing at the mouth, waiting to kill people. Have you ever been to that church? He's coming for you with the sword. Ah! As if Jesus is an angry pirate. Ah! Right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just not buying that. I'm not buying that Jesus has this sword and he can't wait to come wipe out people. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is a God who laid down his life, was tortured, beaten, crucified, dead, and buried so that he didn't have to use that sword on anybody. The story of the Bible is Jesus Christ standing in front of us with, with a sword that can either bring judgment or it can cut the chains off of you. And he's standing in front of you going, what do you want me to do with this? Like I've given you the choice. I can set you free, or it can be the wrath of God. But you get to decide. I hold the sword. I hold the keys to life and death. But at the end of the day, I'm a perfect gentleman, and I will never override your free will. If you want to turn your back on me, then I will let you deal with that. That's the message of the sword that Christ holds. He talks to the next church at, at Thyatira, Revelation 2.18. It says, to the angel of the church at Thyatria. By the way, I, I Googled how to pronounce this, Thyatria. Um, there are three different pronunciations according to Google. Pronunciations? Pronunciation? Yeah. Um, I don't know how to, you just say it however you want to. I'm going to call it T-Town just for fun. <laughs> to the angel of the church at T-Town, Right. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like, bron or like burnished bronze. Gosh, man, his eyes are like blazing fire. When I read that, I was like, I wonder what that means. And God was like, you dummy, you know exactly what it means. <laughs> when you think of someone whose eyes are blazing with fire, do you think of someone who's happy? 
You think of someone going, hey. And when I think of someone's eyes blazing with fire, I think of anger, right? I, I, like, I think of that cartoon where smoke is coming out the ears, right? His eyes are blazing with fire because when he looks at this church, he's angry. And somewhere along the lines, we came up with this theology that said God had no emotion. I don't know where we got that theology because it doesn't seem to be in the Bible because Jesus wept, the Holy Spirit grieves, and God is an angry, jealous God sometimes. And in this picture right here, Jesus looks at his church, at his bride, and he is angry to the point where his eyes are flaming with fire. Not only does it mean he's angry, it means he sees everything. He's like, I see the truth. I see it all. And I'm not happy. But again, of course, he starts with grace in verse 19. He says, I know your deeds your love, your faith, your service, and your perseverance, and that you are doing more now than you did at first? Is that really a compliment? You're doing more than you used to. That's like when I apologize to my wife and say, I'm sorry that you feel that way. <laughs> That's not a real apology, is it? I'm not going to show weakness in front of the woman, though. You know, I can't do that. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> We never really apologize. I mean, what is that? Uh, you're doing more now than you used to do. That, that's, 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 this is Jesus looking for something nice to say because even in his anger, he's still Jesus Christ and he's full of grace. And he's like, you're doing more than you used to do. But then he goes on in verse 20 and says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her into a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. He's like, man. He's like, man, there's this teacher in your church. And they're teaching things that aren't true. They're blending a little of the world with a little of Jesus. And I like it. He says, that he says this teacher is a woman, and I think it is important to note, I don't think that he's mad because this woman is teaching in the church. I think he's mad about what this woman is teaching in the church, and that's a difference. I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> but he's unhappy with what she's teaching because what she has done, and when he talks about adultery in this, I don't, I don't think they're talking about physical adultery, although that may be some of what she's teaching is okay. He's talking about spiritual adultery. When you've chosen something else over the glory of your God. And there is an adultery far worse than physical adultery, and that's when we choose some other religion, some other way, some other thing over the glory of our God. And he's saying for any of you who commit adultery, because God is a jealous God. It's like, I want you to myself. And for those of us who know the truth, there is some compulsion on us to live according to what we know. And we can justify and we can rationalize, but the truth is when we are doing that, when we know truth, when we know the will of God, and we purposely walk another direction, we are walking in dangerous waters. He's super clear on this. Grace is not a shield that allows us to do whatever we want whenever we want to. Grace is the blood of Christ that set us free so that sin was no longer alive in our lives. There's a difference 
So he's saying, man, you must get this right. Turn away from it. Again, he's talking about compromise. Turn away from it. Turn away from compromise. And we were talking about this between services and Chris and Tim. Just, it's, it's the little compromises. It's the little compromise and the little compromise. I'll watch a few minutes of that or I'll listen to a little bit of that or I'll, you know, whatever. It's the little compromises over time and before long you're a mile and a half away from where God wanted you to be. He says, don't, don't compromise. In verse 26, he says, To the one who is victorious and who does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do y'all know what the morning star is? Anybody know? Kevin, what's the morning star? Jesus Christ. Kevin was here for the last two services. <laughs> Think I was just going to let you look that smart in front of a crowd? Come on, man. We're better friends than that. <laughs> He says, to the one who doesn't compromise, you know what I'm going to give you? My life. He says, to the one who refuses to conform to the pattern of the world, I'll give you myself. I'll give you everything. To the one who, who refuses to take a little of the world and wash it in with a little of Jesus. To the one who refuses to have a spiritual life and then a work life and where it's all just a Jesus life. He says, for the one who will do that, I will give you Jesus for the one who chooses to make their life about the fullness of Christ, Christ says what you will receive is the fullness of Christ. Like you will receive all of me if you will give all of you to me. That's the promise. The promise is Jesus. And so as we prepare to come home this Christmas, we got to ask ourselves, what's the compromise in our life? What's the area of compromise? Because it's not just affecting you, it's affecting me. And my compromise isn't just affecting me, it's affecting you. And God's made mine clear. I've, 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 God shows me over and over that I desire when I see things, my first response is how can I, Tommy, manipulate this situation? In my humanity, when I see an obstacle or see something, it's, it's how, can I, how can I do this? I, 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 me, me, me. When I see something, I first try to figure out human ways to take it and manipulate it. And God's like, you know you can't do that anymore. You work for me now. And so my compromise in my life is to not try to do things my way. Rather, it is to completely and totally humble myself to the will of God, lay down my ability and allow things to be done his way, even when I do not like them. Amen. That's my compromise. And what I thought was just affecting me, I now believe is affecting the power of this church. And if I don't get rid of this, it will affect us all. And if you don't deal with what you're compromising, it will affect all of us. Because one part of the body is not any more important than any other part of the body. We're all connected in this. And so all of us must decide we will not tolerate compromise in our lives. And I know this isn't easy. Believe me, I get it. This is not easy. But we're not called to take the easy path. And the fact is, the path is narrow and the road is few, and choose will, few will choose to walk down it. But for those who do, life, like real life, power, 
power that goes beyond any power you can think of, the power to change lives, the power to make disciples, the power to heal. It's a weird prayer that Christians must pray or people who want to follow Christ. The prayer is, God, bring the sword. Bring the sword on me and cut away from my life anything that's keeping me from you. Bring the sword on me, God, and allow me to see what I need to see. Give me self-realization to see what I need to see, to cut out the things in God. And I, I, can't, I can't stop myself from wanting to manipulate things in my humanity, but I don't have to because the one who holds the sword is the one who's fighting for me. And you can't overcome whatever your compromise is on your own. If you could, you'd already done it. You can't do it on your own, but you don't have to because the one who holds the sword is the one who's fighting for you. He's the one who can fight your grief. He's the one who can fight your guilt. He's the one who can fight your pride. He's the one who can fight your shame. He's the one who can fight your addiction. He's the one who can fight whatever it is that's come against you. The one who holds the sword is stronger. And so, it's Christmas. It's time to come home. Will you allow the king to use his sword on you? Because without it, you cannot be set free. Guys, there can be no compromise. It's time for God's people to come home. Amen.